Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Introducing the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm joined by the, the trumpeteer is Ben Sternke. <laughs> and Gino Gercaruto. I, hey. I don't play an instrument nope, with my nope. mouth. Yeah, well, we can't all be uh, special, Gino. What's that, no. what's, that, uh, what's that thing you hold in your mouth and you like flick a piece what's of mouth metal? Mouth harp. Mouth, mouth harp. Isn't it mouth yeah. harp? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's how it sounds. Kazoo. I can do kazoo, I guess. We don't Gino need- is guest... He's guest hosting with us, uh, just because we happen to be recording another podcast episode with Gino. Um, Gino's been on the podcast. He's our community liaison. He is. Um, yes. And he just agreed to uh, introduce this podcast uh, that we have today with uh, Kristen Dumay. I'm excited about this episode. So yeah, let's, uh, let's intro it, guys. Let's, let's intro it. Go. Well, here we go. It's Holy Week, <laughs> so I'm not sure if you knew that, but Jesus is about yeah. ready to die and raise again for your sins. Two, mm-hmm. today, March 30th. 2021 is the day Ben and I get our first vaccine shots. Yeah. Well, let's hear it for Gen X, for, saving the world co- again. For COVID. Nice. Not for malaria or anything like that. Oh, yeah. is this COVID? Yep, just for I'm COVID. Just yep. I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah. yeah, we're getting COVID shots. Gen uh, X. Yeah, the, the Indiana age went down to Gen X. We've got 45-year-olds now. Whew. I've been vaccinated for a while. So well, well, that's because that, you that's put because your hands 55. on people for a little. Um, <laughs> Gen X, Gen X, just you jumping ahead of you. I know you just you are ahead. You are ahead of us because of your chiropractic work. That's true. And then, uh, yeah, we're talking to Kristen Cobes Dumay today. I know there's probably been a dozen podcasts with her. You may have listened to all of them, but we decided today to take a different tact, uh, talking with her about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, which I think is 
one of the more substantial and important books that was written in 2020. Like it, mm. it's just hard to overstate how important I think that book is to understand what many white evangelicals are feeling, which is, holy cow, what is happening? Like that's kind of the, a lot of people yeah. are just going, what is going on right now? And Kristen yes. Dume's book gives some historical orientation to help us understand, oh, yeah, that's what's going on right now. It helps us yes. feel less crazy and gives us yeah. actually a way to move forward if we yes. want to be uh, faithful Christians. But we talked to her a bit about, in this interview, about the reaction to her book and mm-hmm. how she has been navigating that. I don't think, mm. uh, I don't know if she was ready f- or she anticipated it being as wildly popular as it is, but it is. And yeah. she's now working on a second book that she talks about. And we get into a little bit of what the book's about, but mostly about how she's dealing with all the interviews and the responses and the reviews and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's, uh, I, I like, um, it was fun to talk to her about this because I do think one of the things she says here is that it's, it's overwhelmingly positive. Like, obviously there's some pushback. Some people don't really want to look at these things or see these things the way that you know, white evangelicalism has sort of intertwined itself with this toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and everything right. that kind of erupted in the election of 2016 in that regard and all that kind of thing. But um, the thing I was in- encouraged by is what you said earlier, Matt, that this, like her book is actually being received, the overwhelming response has been positive, that it helps people make sense of why they've felt crazy or how could this have happened? You know, people, as there, there was such a shock, I think, among White evangelicals, like hearing the stat, for example, that 81% right, uh, of people voted for Trump. And, you know, no matter how you kind of parse all of that, I think it was, it, it, it was like, I didn't even believe it at first. I was mm-hmm. like, there's something wrong with the poll. There has to be, that can't be, that can't be right. But you read uh, Kristen's book and you're like, oh, I see how, I see how this was created. I yeah. see how this was um, cultivated intentionally. Not by everybody in there, but like, you know, uh, from the from the higher ups, you know, the people who with the publishing uh, contracts and all that kind of thing, how mm-hmm. it was created. Yep. And, um, and this kind of uh, this kind of book, this sort of historical, like looking at the historical and political factors that go into the development of theology has been super disorienting for me to read about the last few years <laughs> and yes. also really illuminating. Yes. As I, as I read the book, um, I reflected on this was about around the time that I had come to faith. So a lot of this stuff, like re, re-listen, or listening to this, this narrative and then remembering how I experienced this and thinking like, I felt like I was being drawn into something that I didn't trust. And now I understand why I had that instinct. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know you uh, can trust your instincts, maybe, Gina. Well, well so. yeah. If we can't trust our instincts, we f- we end up going crazy. So this is mm-hmm. good. Yeah, and I I have a, I've had conversations with a lot of people with your same experience, Gino. I mean, I I grew up in this, and so it sort of felt like home to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few little you know rumblings when I was younger that I was like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense, or how does yeah. this fit with you know that kind of thing. But especially people who came to faith and were sort of brought into this world, there yeah, there is this sort of. Uh, disorientation that mm. that they've been dealing with, and this book For helps sure. to name that and why yes. it's there. So sweet, yes. sweet. All right. Well, 
let's get in. This is a perfect meditation for Holy Week, friends. So mm. uh, enjoy this podcast. Enjoy this interview with Kristen. Gino, thanks for guest hosting the podcast yeah. today. Thanks for having me on. It's good right. to maybe do we'll this do intro some, with you. Maybe we'll do some more of it. It's, I'd love it's it. fun. Yeah, all right. Enjoy all right. this podcast. Here we, Here we go. go. Kristen Dumay, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm joined by Kristen and Ben. Hey, Ben. Hey, hey, Matt. Hi, Kristen. Good to be here with Hi. you. And we are we are talking today about <laughs> this amazing book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen, when you got the idea to write this book... Um, <laughs> Did you have any idea about the impact and resonance it would have in 2021? Ugh. Okay, so I, um, I'm supposed to answer this question by saying, no, I'm as shocked as you are, <laughs> but that's not exactly <laughs> true. Uh, I... Um, so I, I started researching uh, this book, not knowing it would be this book, more than 15 years ago. And then I set it aside, but I've been paying attention to these issues of white evangelical masculinity and militarism for a very long time. And it was really in the, the fall of 2016 that things kind of clicked uh, the weeks after the Access Hollywood tape uh, released and uh, the election of Donald Trump. And honestly, it was just this moment of it just clicked. And I thought, I see what's happening here. And I think I know what's going to happen mm. here. And it felt mm. really big at that time. It felt like this explained so much. And and so I always felt that I was working on something that was that was important as I was writing it. Uh, you know, I was writing it during uh, the Trump presidency, day in, day mm-hmm. out. I was, you know, what was happening in the news. I was, I felt like I was explaining it. I had it all in front of me. And so as I was writing, it was this, you know, I, I was writing with urgency. I knew I needed to get this out. And there was just so much that I needed mm-hmm. to pull together. Um, so I felt like it was, it was a big thing. I um, When I shopped the proposal around, uh, every publisher agreed it was a pretty big thing. So it, it had this immediate resonance. And uh, yeah, so by the time it finally published, it was actually this agonizing wait, almost a year, you know, between submitting the manuscript and then having the book published. And yes. that uh, was 2020. <laughs> so, you know, you can see this wow. thing, uh, one thing after another, and it just it felt more and more relevant. You know, we went through the impeachment mm. and then COVID and masks and, uh, and, and then um, uh, Black Lives Matter. And all of this was just happening with such intensity. It felt like we were careening out of control. And then, and then the book landed right in the middle of that. And, and so it, it felt like, against all odds, it was at the right time, the best possible time, um, the most urgent time. And so, um, that said, you never know. You never know that. Right. Uh, it, it's always a little miracle when a book finds its way into the hands of the right readers. And so, I'm, mm. I'm incredibly grateful for that. But, but yeah, the whole time I was writing, I felt like it was a pretty, pretty critical uh, story that I was telling. 
Yeah, I I have this picture, Kristen, of you like in 2020, like doing these Lamaze breathing as your, <laughs> as your editor has your book, like just birth this thing already, right? Oh, that that's you know, and it wasn't just it wasn't just me. It was also my editor, my publicist. Oh. You know, we're watching what's happening. And they actually moved my well, they moved my book up twice uh, in in okay. the the publication date. The first when they first saw the manuscript. Uh, first draft, ugly first draft. Uh, it was supposed to be turned in. The, it, I turned it in, in in April. The final draft is supposed to be turned in in December. And <laughs> right away, my editor said, uh, "Would you be okay if we move up your deadline to to August?" And so right there, you know, my my mm. edit, editorial phase was cut in yeah. half. So it was incredibly intense. Yeah. And then uh, mm. with everything happening early 2020, they moved it up again, um, just a few weeks from. Uh, June to May, and then COVID hit, and then they moved it back again. So it was it was it was a very active process of trying to figure out how to release this book um, in the midst of COVID okay. and uh, in the political situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I want to get into why why would you want to why why fifteen years? What drew you to this topic? Why did you have to research it? But first, uh, I know you've. I know you've talked about your book a ton. I know you've had to give the two-minute sitting on a plane. I wrote a book. What's it about? Pretend like we have no idea what this book is about. What's the two-minute? Tell me about your book. Okay, well, I'll combine it with how I started it. Is fifteen oh, years great. ago. I I uh, I was teaching a class on U.S. history, and I had this little lecture on Teddy Roosevelt, and um, I thought it was mm. a great little lecture showing how gender and masculinity worked in history. It can be linked to American power and linked to religion and linked to nation and all these things. And after class, a couple of guys came up to me. I teach at Calvin University, a, a Christian college, and uh, they, they said, Professor Dumay, there's this book you really need to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And Eldridge opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and um, goes on to sketch this very militant, militaristic conception of, you know, quote unquote, Christian manhood. And this Mm. was in about 2005 or 2006, the early years of the Iraq War. And uh, survey data was coming out, making so clear that white evangelicals were outliers when it came to aggressive foreign policy, preemptive war, condoning the use of terror, you know, just really an embrace of militarism. And so I started to ask, you know, what does one have to do with the other? Uh, this, this kind of domestic vision of masculinity, of rugged, even militant Christian manhood, this warrior masculinity, um, maybe it's more than just something we can laugh off and, you know, men going on wild at heart retreats on the weekend, uh, maybe maybe this is this is part of something bigger. Um, and yeah. so that's the question that I started to explore. And um, so essentially the book is a history of uh, white evangelical masculinity and militarism from uh, really the Cold War uh, to the present moment. Mm. Yeah. And so so why so this became this became interesting to you because of some students that were basically like this isn't just Teddy Roosevelt check out this John Elders yeah. book yeah uh, current yeah I'm curious how did you how did you grow up and did you did any of this were you aware of any of this happening around you as you grew up um, I you mentioned in your book you grew up a Christian did, was any of this happening around you and if so. So that's the first question. And then if so, as you did research, were you surprised by anything that you didn't expect to find or see in the data? 
Yeah, I grew up Christian. I, I, I was raised conservative Christian, but I never identified as evangelical. I uh, was uh, in, I grew up in a small town in Iowa in a Dutch immigrant community, very Christian reformed, uh, so a small ethnic yeah. denomination. And uh, at the same time, looking back, I can also say I was pretty immersed in uh, cultural evangelicalism. So I only listened to mm. Christian contemporary music because that's what good Christians mm-hmm. did. Uh, mm-hmm. Our only bookstore in town was a Christian bookstore. And, uh, you know, so looking back, uh, you know, I heard James Dobson on the radio. Uh, so although I identified as a confessional, you know, reformed uh, Christian, I, I I was influenced by this world. Um, I was, I'm a little too old to have gotten the full immersion in, in the whole purity culture, um, thank goodness. But, you know, there, there were elements of that, certainly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... So I, um, I kind of one foot in, one foot out of evangelicalism. I think I've always been curious about it, aware of it, familiar with it, but really not growing up at, at the center of things. Um, in terms of surprises, when I, I researched this book, uh, early on, I was very surprised by just how bad things were. I was surprised <laughs> by what I was reading. Um, in fact, that's one of the reasons I set the project aside early on. I, uh, what I was reading was uh, horrifying to me. It was deeply misogynistic. It seemed uh, unbiblical. Uh, the the militarism the the just the militancy this us versus them mentality in terms of foreign policy and de- in terms of you know who is your neighbor and and so I, I had this nagging question of is this really just the fringe you know is this this fringe mm. movement that we're looking at and if so. Oh, first of all, do I want to spend the years I know it's going to take to write this book immersed in this? Because it was really revolting to me. Uh, and then second of all, if it is fringe, is it responsible to be shining this bright light on what might be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity, right? So I'm a Christian. Is that mm. is that what I, I should be doing here? Uh, and, I, and then other things just came along. I was finishing another book. I had a kid, and then I had another kid, and then I had another kid. And so it just was like <laughs> set aside, and I was going to come back to it at some point. Uh, and I always felt kind of bad, like, oh, that was a waste. Uh, I did a lot of, you know, a year and a half of research there. Um, so uh, I, I guess that the surprising thing was uh, really to tease out when I picked up the project again. What was this relationship? What is the relationship between what seems like fringe, uh, what seems really beyond the pale, and what we consider mainstream evangelicalism, what we consider respectable evangelicalism? And that's a thread that I trace through the book, and that's a very relevant question, I think, for what we're looking at right now in 2021. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that that's—I want to get into how this book has been received um, and and maybe— pull on some of the threads that you mentioned. Uh, but that's one of the things that, as I read, I felt this, you know, I, I wasn't raised evangelical. I was raised Roman Catholic. And then I became a Christian in college through, well, I, I had my conversion experience in college through an varsity kind of ministry. And so, you know, I was just sort of like adopted into evangelicalism without even knowing that's what was happening. Um, and, and as I read, I, I, nothing really surprised me in your book, but I, Every time I read that, I I realized I had these answers already preloaded to defend against these critiques. Like this is just outliers; these are excesses; these are the crazies. This isn't mainstream, right? And I realized as I as I heard that in my head, this is the same 
kind of rhetoric we heard in 2016 about Donald Trump's appeal to the evangelical base. And then when all the data came out, like the emperor had no clothes. <laughs> Yeah, well, right? and you know, this question of mainstream and fringe, like, uh, I originally did not intend to include Bill Gothard in this book, right? Because that's mm. just, you know, that's fringe. Bill Gothard is fringe. And I kept running into people who were saying, Kristen, you're going to include Bill Gothard, right? You have to include Bill Gothard. People I never knew were influenced by Bill Gothard. Uh, you know, <laughs> good friends, other scholars, like, oh, no, no, you have to look. You know, this was this beneath the surface. So then I started looking into Bill Gothard. And then I realized that, you know, I, I put him in a chapter with James Stops because you know mm. James Dobson uh, absolutely undeniably mainstream evangelicalism uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> If you look at evangelicalism as a cultural movement, and you look at their teachings, Gothard and Dobson, you hold them up, and they're awfully similar, right? And that was really when I started to see here, okay, so yes, one is more extreme, implementation more extreme, but the core teachings, very compatible. And so we need to understand affinities, and uh, we need to understand how this plays out in people's lives. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Ben, did you grow up with Bill Gothard? Uh, no, not Bill Gothard, but James Dobson, yes. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm maybe one of those uh, folks who was indirectly uh, influenced um, by Bill Gothard. And I, I recognize a lot of, you know, what you're talking about just in terms of how I grew up. Um, I grew up pretty solidly within, you know, that, that camp. Um, and those, those beliefs that you call into question, um, you know, they were pretty, you know, just standard, non-controversial things. It's sort of just everybody believed, you know, this is what, you know, you believe as a Christian. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I do want to hear a bit about Matt's question about how this book has been received. Um, and maybe just preface that by saying, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen about um, uh, your book um, and, and books like it, I, I'm reading The Christian Imagination right now by Willie James Jennings, which I think it feels like a similar kind of book in the sense that it's this mapping of how Christian theology and some, you know, cultural elements have sort of merged, which, you know, obviously that's always what happens. But I think it can be deeply jarring for people who grew up just thinking this is, this is what the Bible says. Yes. It's deeply jarring to, to hear somebody show, like to have somebody show you, oh, actually, like, that verse, you know, that passage that you think teaches that, um, it, the the way the way that you're reading it has a historic. There's a re historic reason that you read it that way, and why that seems obvious to you, and it can be deeply jarring because I think people feel like, oh my gosh, well, is Christianity even true, or is you know, uh, they they feel like they don't have a sort of a leg to stand on, um, and so mm -hmm. uh, I guess I would be I would be interested to hear. Uh, how the book has been received, if if you've heard some of those 
kinds of things from <laughs> I people. <have. laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and if you have anything uh, to say uh, to, to those people, like I, you know, I don't know if there's a, a word to, to kind of give to, to folks like that who they're not ready to jump ship on their faith. Uh, but mm-hmm. they're they're sort of searching and saying, well, what's the f- like? How do I figure out what's true here? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm I'm a person of faith. I'm a confessing Christian, active in my local church, and uh, you teach at a Christian university. And so I wrote this so it's absolutely as okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I wrote this book, and um, and it, yeah. it honestly felt good to write this book because uh, you're right. Much that passes for Christianity, and I think much that people are really struggling with right now before they've read this book. Uh, you know, that's being done in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, right? That's what's unsettling. I actually Mm -hmm. have found that the response to my book is it's affirming. It it, it helps people realize they are not the crazy ones here. Uh, It helps Mm -hmm. them actually to reclaim their faith uh, because it seems so discredited when they see uh, what people are doing in the name of their faith. Um, So so what happened is this book released uh, in June and... um, I, I was intentional about going outside of Christian publishing. I had some Christian publishers actually interested hmm. in this, and I, okay. I kept telling them, like, oh, I don't think so. I, I don't think this is going to be the right fit. And they're like, no, 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 really, <laughs> it is. And so we went back and forth, and we ended up going with a, just a, you know, a trade publisher, a wonderful publisher, okay. uh, Live Right. And, um, and they have—so um, their audience was always— um, kind of you know anybody who reads the New York Times it's it's not you know okay. they, they weren't targeting evangelicals okay. I was I, I but I knew it would be tougher I knew that I'd have to kind of reach that so they were you know hmm. we had this great launch NPR's morning edition Steve Inskeep it was you know beautiful oh, wow. and yeah. uh, so that was the kind of you know release of the book into the world as a kind of uh, issue of national significance but I was hoping to still tap the the kind of evangelical uh, world. Um, but I knew I knew I'd need a little help with that. But um, within like two three days of the book's release, it I started getting letters, and mm. they are still coming several a day. Uh, letters from wow. readers, um, and people think I'm getting a ton of hate mail. Um, I think I've, I can count on one hand the the. Um, unhappy letters that I've received and I've probably probably like six seven hundred um just amazing letters from readers mm. most of them say something to the effect of this is the story of my life and thank mm-hmm. you um mm. and so and they are gorgeous gorgeous letters I mean each one <laughs> different and some of them is astounding like they can they they, they their life maps perfectly onto this book um mm. and uh wow. you know men women, uh, uh, you know, older, younger, it's, it's just really, um, and, and they're all testifying. And, you know, what I'm hearing from them is, you know, in the words of one man, I bumped into so many of these trees, but I never saw the forest. Or, you uh, know, like, I never understood oh, yeah. how all these pieces fit together. Uh, I've received letters from evangelical leaders um, saying, or sometimes they say, hey, we need to talk, so we get on Zoom. And, you know, they'll say things like, um, I have been complicit in this. I see this now. I thought what I was doing was this, and now I see, and what can I do? How do I make amends? Um, And we talk, and we talk for a long time. 
So mm. um, the way this book is being received is beyond my wildest dreams within the evangelical world. Um, it has surprised my publisher just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, <laughs> after the second time that we we ran out uh, of, of and had to issue another like urgent print run, uh, my <laughs> publisher asked me, like, can you help us understand what's going on here? And, uh, and what I said is, okay, remember, I told my editor, remember that one time, you know, my editor, publisher, like totally outside of this world. Yeah. I said, remember that one time in the manuscript when I wrote uh, the evangelical subculture and you crossed it out and said, I don't know what this means. <laughs> let, let me introduce you to the evangelical yes. subculture, right? Yes. That's what's happening. And there's an irony here because exactly what I was writing about, those are the channels now that this book is being is, is moving its way through. And so, wow. pastors groups are reading it, um, Bible mm -hmm. studies, you know, church groups, um, podcasts like this right yes, this is this yeah, is yeah. where the and, and it's spreading word of mouth and so it's really been remarkable and uh mm. and it's been incredibly gratifying and honestly i have more hope now uh seven months out than i did when i when i finished this book wow. certainly yeah that's that's really beautiful Kristen. you you almost get to act as you know, I don't know what uh, tradition uh, of faith <laughs> uh, that you are a part of, but you almost get to act as a priest in their lives. They're confessing, they're confessing sin to you in a sense, right? And you're able yeah. to sort of offer consolation, um, uh, maybe some absolution, depending on uh, your theology there. But anyway, actually, I, I don't. Uh, I just challenge yeah. them more. <laughs> so, like, yeah. to be to be clear, well, I don't absolve too. anyone. Yes. I'm just like, yes. actually, it's it's probably worse than you think. So let's talk. Yeah. So. Very good. Okay. Well, good to know. No, I, uh, I guess, uh, I guess I wanted to comment on that because it, uh, I think it's great that it has gone. It, it's almost, it's almost doing the opposite work of what. Like my original question was that people are afraid of doing this kind of exploration in their faith because they're afraid they might lose their faith. But you're talking about actually the fact that we can connect these dots is helping people save save their faith. It's helping people it stay in faith because they, they don't have to sort of sear their own conscience in order to affirm what they have been given to be like, oh, this is just Christianity. Um, exactly. And they have to just adopt something that feels uh, horrible to them. Um, right, this is they can look at this. Say, is it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, they, they can look at this and say, this is not my faith, right? This is not what I believe. When you see yes. how the pieces got put together, you yeah. see who was putting them together, to what ends, and then it can become quite yes. clear. You can literally see the distortion, the corruption of the faith that they profess, that they want to profess. And so, that's actually very liberating. Like, this is not yes. what I believe. And you're able to, yes. because again, all of these things were packaged and sold, as you said, in your own childhood, in mine too, this is simply Christianity. This yeah, is yeah. to be a faithful Christian parent, mm -hmm. wife, son, you know, this yeah. is it. And it's not. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Kristen, the thing that su has surprised me about what I've seen as a reaction to your book is that there's been the two ways that evangelicals in the past have uh, avoided maybe self-correction and self-critique has been to ignore books like yours, just ignore them and pretend like they're not happening. Or to say, yes, that's about other people, but not us. Mm -hmm. And I don't see either happening. I, I see people, um, even platforms that I would not expect to be reckoning with your book, devoting like an entire week to discussing it. Um, 
and it's largely like largely agreeing with you. Uh, has that been surprising to you? Did you expect to see that or uh, or no? Uh, so first of all, it's hard to see when people ignore something. So I will say that there are people who have been trying very hard to ignore this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not going to name names, uh, but but mm. I know who they are, and I'm watching them, and I see a little chatter. <laughs> uh, you know, the first week I saw a little bit on Twitter saying she's not worth our time, uh, mm. and I've mm. seen you know certain folks that I'm just waiting, and they are studiously ignoring this, and I think also mm. uh, trying to suppress uh, chatter among others um, unsuccessfully. So yes, I'm, mm. I'm I'm watching. I mean, I've been watching this this culture for for years. <laughs> More than a yeah, decade, decade and so, a half at least. Yeah, yeah. So I know what to look for, uh, and it's been highly entertaining for me to watch it play out. Um, but yes, on, oh. on the whole, um, the vast so, so the vast majority are are saying again, this is this is this is true. This is us. This is me. I anticipated so much more pushback and precisely of the sort that you you suggest that this is not us. This is, you know, trying to separate. This is, this is those people over here uh, or over there. And, um, mm. and there's a little mm. bit of that. I've, I've heard a little bit of people trying to push back, um, you know, particularly people um, whose own social location has positioned them in a way that the darker sides of evangelicalism simply weren't visible to them. So if you mm. are a, uh, an educated, respectable white male uh, who is maybe finds himself uh, at Wheaton College or, uh, you know, in, mm. in a certain mm. space— and the evangelicalism that you um, encounter day in, day out doesn't look a lot like much of what I write about in this book. It's not separate, though, and that's a point I make in this book. Uh, there are connections, affinities, and complicities. Uh, but the day-to-day, you think, oh, come on, it really isn't that bad. But uh, again, if you are uh, a Christian who is not male, not white, uh, chances are you're going to, this is going to, it's going to be hard not to see a lot of what's in this book, right? You, you kind of know it's been your experience, these yeah. boundaries, these barriers, it's very apparent. And so um, it's always interesting to me to hear how people are receiving this book uh, based on their own experience. Uh, but again, mm. I, I, I still expected much more of that and much less of this wholehearted embrace. And that that is, again, those mm. are the people who, who feel like writing me. So, so there's maybe, you know, some self-selection here. But for hundreds mm. and hundreds and hundreds of people, it's, it's like, nope, this is us. This is me. And it explains so much. I'm so stinking encouraged by that. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I, I think, you know, you don't know anything about us and, and our work, but that's part of why I'm encouraged is because I think, um, I think there is a growing group of people who see these things as problems, who, who are beginning to see, you know, these things as, as issues. And I think books like yours really help to ground that, not just in like, I don't know. I think sometimes these kinds of things are, are poo-pooed, you know, um, as like, oh, you'll grow out of it or yeah. you'll get used to it or you're just being a grumpy millennial or, you know, like I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a millennial, but I've heard these things, you know, uh, spoken. And so I'm, I'm encouraged as well that your book has uh, received such, um, it's gotten such a good uh, reception uh, from folks like that, because I think there is 
it gives me hope, I guess, for, for the future of like just people like us, people who see these things as problems, but who want to hold on to Christian faith and think there's something valuable here uh, that's not worth just, you know, ditching. So yeah. Yeah. thank you. It's a good book. Yeah. I, you mentioned in the beginning, Kristen, uh, militarism and masculinity. Then, mm. then your subtitle of your book names two other themes that are so hard to extricate from those two things, but are also central, which is mm-hmm. race and mm. uh, yeah. politics, like national yeah. politics. Yes. Mm. Um, yes. I wonder, right? So I don't know if those are like the four. How do you see those four things? Race, conservative national politics, militarism, and masculinity. How do you conceive of those things intersecting? Oh, such a good question. And first, a little backstory here. Uh, So I've always thought of this as my book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And then when it came time to title the book, uh, (laughs) we were told uh, very early on in the process from the sales team. So working at a big publisher like this, a lot of people have a say. Um, We were informed Mm -hmm. that um, we were not allowed to use the words masculinity or militarism in the title or subtitle because they were too long. And uh, they know how to sell books, and those are too long. And so (laughs) you can see the dilemma that that, uh, that, uh, we are faced with. Right. And that's what the book is about. Shoot. Uh, right, right, right. But you know, I <laughs> I went with a trade publisher. I went with this publisher because I I I wanted this advice. Right. This is so as much as I wanted yeah, to fight yeah. back and boy did I yeah. want to fight back. I was like, you know, how, how do I do this? Uh, you just like, okay, okay, so what are we it took us three months and it it got down to the wire. Uh, the Jesus and John Wayne part came um pretty quickly. Uh, although that was not I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. <laughs> that came pretty late in the writing process. I just kept seeing this pop up, pop up. And I was like, what if I just pull this thread through? What what happens then? So so that was fun mm-hmm. and that worked. And the sales team was perfectly happy with that. But uh, yeah, right. the subtitle, what, what we ended up just having to do is sitting down and saying, okay, what essentially is this book? What does it come down to? And the corrupted a faith part, um, that was actually a part that I had to really think about carefully. Um, I was given two options in the end, transformed a faith or corrupted a faith. And I thought mm. um, transformation can often be something good. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm going to go with corruption. Yeah. I want to be very clear what this book is about. Um, and it's been described by reviewers as sharp-elbowed, and I think that's appropriate. And I think that the subtitle <laughs> um, gives it, gives an honest sense. Uh, yeah, that said, yeah. my, my hesitation wasn't the harshness. It was, um, it's a theological claim, right? It's, it's, uh, it's saying that there's a faith, um, again, that there's a faith that can be salvaged. That yeah. is not this. It's not a historical yes. claim. Uh, it, but I, I left it. That, that's my speaking to evangelicals directly, speaking to Christians yes, yes. directly. And yes. the book, most of the book is just history. It really is. But there's this critical framing, and I really, you know, that's where I'm speaking to them directly. And then the transformed a nation, that's because this this matters not just to evangelicals. It matters uh, to our country. Uh, it, it matters globally, actually. Um, so what's the connection then hmm. between masculinity and militarism? And uh, uh, this uh, in politics, and what was the other one? Um, race, yeah. 
Uh, race, race, yeah. right. The whiteness, whiteness. Uh, this is a story about white evangelicals that, that triggers some people. I've heard uh, that uh, they don't yeah. like that the whiteness is in there in the title and that suggests that I'm perhaps racist. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's simply descriptive uh, that uh, mm-hmm. I am looking at a historical and cultural and religious movement that is largely uh, and certainly dominantly a white religious movement. Look at who I'm talking yeah. about, who's pu- writing these books, yeah. who's who's buying these books, who's listening to this radio, who is not listening to this radio, right? Who who identifies with this movement, who does not? And, and, and then it becomes very, very clear we are looking at a white religious movement. It's purely descriptive. Um, yeah. And these ideals of militant masculinity and of militancy, uh, as I demonstrate in the book, these are closely linked to white racial identity. Um, closely linked to ideals of Christian nationalism, the idea of that America is a Christian nation, that whole concept that America was, you know, founded as this Christian nation, everything was great until sometime around the 1960s, and then everything fell apart. That that only makes sense if you're a white person. Like, let's be honest. Yes. Um, We don't talk about it as, as a racial identity, but Christian nationalism is a white racial identity. And so uh, that all of these things come together. These are all really facets of the same um, the, the same thing. And uh, mm-hmm. so so militarism, this militancy that you need to fight to protect uh, God and country, you need to protect this ideal of Christianity, of white Christian nationalism, frankly. And this mm-hmm. militancy uh, requires, uh, just the perpetual creation, fabrication of enemies of the other, and yeah. uh, yes. and so that that leads to this polarization, that leads to this fracturing of of the nation, because um, conservative white evangelicals really have eroded any real sense of common good. Uh, love your neighbor, yeah. love your enemies, right? That has really gotten lost here. Um, and, and so, so that's, that's how all these yeah. things connect. It's, it's militarism. Yeah. It's um, this yeah. masculinity linked to you need to fight for this. And all of this is part of a white religious movement and a white racial identity. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, as you were saying, earlier about just writing the book and feeling the urgency of the moment. Um, I think there was, there was something and is even now something continuing to be revealed there, right? Where it used, used to be when I was a kid, it was sort of, it was sort of carefully couched. Uh, so it wasn't as overt and obvious, um, as it is today. So you even said like, love your enemies, like that has been overtly repudiated by yes. white Christian leaders. Yes. They said, well, yeah, that's no. Basically they said like, we're not doing that. Like I know yep. Jesus said it, but, yeah. and then they state the opposite as if that's obvious to everybody. Yes. And then, you know, people were like, yeah, that's obvious to us. And, and I don't know. I just, that, that moment for me was just so stark. It was like, yeah. wow, like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what's. And so, uh, I think that's, that's when <laughs> that's at the point at which people start looking around for resources like your book to say like, what ha- what just happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, what are we looking at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Per- permit me to do an analogy here, Kristen, as we wind down the the conversation. So Ben and I started Gravity Leadership because we were a part of um, maybe a generation that uh, was like after the John Maxwell sort of Dale Carnegie like leadership kind of best practices of the 80s and 90s, sort of the post-megachurch generation that wanted to do small church 
and have all this distributed leadership and and basically just ran away from the abusive, toxic, top-down hierarchical leadership that they had experienced in their churches growing up. But there was no no um, crystallized vision of of a good or a beautiful or a true. There was just not that. Yeah. And so lots of people ran away from bad leadership into no leadership, which if you've yeah. ever been in a situation where there's no leadership, it's also awful, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In many ways, it mm-hmm. can be awful. Yeah. Um, and, so, um, and so one of the projects of gravity is to say, you know what? No, let's like reclaim love as the center of leadership. And that mm-hmm. has different meaning. Like that answers the question, what are people for differently? Um, and that answers the question, what is success differently? And we honor different things when we take love seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I guess the analogy is, I think your book does the same thing for people who saw for decades have seen the horrors of patriarchy and the horrors that what fear and anger do to the human spirit in order to galvanize a voting block, has seen the horrors of white supremacy and racism, you know, have seen the horrors of violence and uh, jingoistic um, foreign policy. And, and the only option that many of us had was, well, if that's Christianity, then screw it. Yeah. I'm out. You know, I, I can't do this. I don't want anything to do with that. And so what I'm seeing is like for decades, people, not everybody, but in general, they either had to do one of two things, obey their conscience and leave Christianity or basically gaslight their conscience and stay inside of it Um, because they felt it was like compromised or like your word, corrupted. And what your book is doing is from the inside, I think, it's saying, no, 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 no. All the stuff that bothers you it actually is okay that it bothers you because it's awful. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. And that's such a gift. That's such a gift for uh, those of us who have been sort of screaming at our own souls. Like, why can't anybody yes. else see this? So, like, you've, you've given the church a gift, Kristen, and uh, it actually points a way forward, not of fear and not of domination and not of control and not of hierarchical organization based upon might or skin color. So I, that's a long comment to just say um, the ironic, prophetic spirit of this book is what we need in 2021. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. You know, one of the first responses to this book from the evangelical world was in Christ and pop culture, and um, Eric Danielson reviewed it and said, mm. um, you know, yes, this book is harsh, and yes, it's sharp. But at its heart, it's a it's a book of lament, and at its at its core is love. Yes, and that was such an, a remarkable kind of first read uh, for me to encounter wow. uh, in this world, wow. and I was so grateful that that was the way it was received, and that's that's exactly true. Yes, yes, it's a it's a weeping over America. Um, and asking us to reckon with the things that make for peace as American Christians. Um, Kristen, maybe um, as you stagger through the incredible popularity of this book and try to hit every podcast and um, of the things you're doing, uh, maybe, like, what's next for you? Where do you go from Jesus and John Wayne? So I have a next book already in the works, uh, and it is mm-hmm. called—it's it's kind of the flip side of Jesus and John Wayne— uh, Jesus and John Wayne for the girls, I call it, and it is called Live, Laugh, Love. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a cultural history of white Christian femininity, uh, tracing roughly the same time period. Uh, so, looking at things like inspirational fiction and blogging and music and direct sales and analyzing this all oh, in terms oh. of neoliberalism, post-feminism, and white supremacy. <laughs> Take all my well, money. Sign me up. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's that is amazing. And uh, is there a date? Any kind of oh timeline for that? Yes, there's. It's already breathing down my neck. Now I need to turn oh. it in in 2023. So I've I've got time. It seems like a really long time to readers. As the writer, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm already starting to lose sleep over yeah. it, which is you know not cool. So I um, I I'm hope hoping to find a way to. Uh, get some release time next year and if i can devote a year to writing then then it should be good yeah All right. well All right. um i just want to call our listeners so you, you mentioned something earlier Kristen, about how hard jesus and john wayne was to research and write yeah. um because it's kind of awful and painful and because you're sort of evangelical adjacent like these are mm. like cousins right mm. and like yeah. neighbors of neighbors and so yeah. it's it's hard um, and so, like, I just want to call our listeners to be praying for you. Hmm. Um, this book might even be closer to home, right? Writing as a woman about yeah. the Christian woman industrial complex. Yes. And um, so, anyway, I just commend our readers to pray for you because your labor uh, is not in vain. It's bearing fruit. Um, yeah. So, the book, again, is called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and fractured a nation. Kristen, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 